and eight. The first four jhanas are sometimes referred to as the material jhanas or fine material jhanas. It's not that they are material, but it's more like in the material world we've had experiences of rapture, happiness, contentment, quiet stillness. So they're not different. Also, in the four jhanas, there's a sense of the body, which is material. So, that makes sense. But the main material jhanas comes actually from the name of the second four. In the suttas, they're not called jhanas at all. They're called the four immaterial states. It's not until the Abhidhamma that they were given the name the four immaterial jhanas. So since you had four immaterial jhanas, then you had to have four material jhanas, and then you had the eight jhanas. It's a convenient way of talking about the whole collection of eight. You do find many places in the suttas where someone goes through the four jhanas and then goes through the four immaterial states. So a sequence of eight, and it just makes sense to call it the eight jhanas. These immaterial states are quite unlike anything we have experienced in the material world, as we'll see. There's a simile in the Visuddhimagga, the commentary from 5th century AD from Sri Lanka, about the four material jhanas, the first four. You're lost in the desert. You don't have any water. That's a pretty precarious position. You come over a little rise, and in the distance you see what looks like palm trees. It might be an oasis. You head towards it. As you get closer, it doesn't disappear. It doesn't appear to be a mirage. And then you start meeting people. They have bundles of wet clothing. They have wet hair. It's an oasis. You get really excited. First job. You come to the oasis. <laughs> There's this huge pool of water, lots of palm trees. You are very happy. Second job. You get in the water, you cool off, you clean up, you drink all the water you want. You get out, you are content. And then you lie down in the shade of a tree and have a rest. This is very much like the progress through the four jhanas. In fact, sometimes when you come out of a really good fourth jhana, uh, it may feel like you had a nap, except you know for certain you didn't fall asleep. But it can be that restful. It's kind of a nice place. I mean, normally we're busy thinking, thinking, thinking all day long. And then when we're sleeping, we're either unconscious or we're dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. And yet when you get to the fourth jhana, not much going on and you're still awake. So it's very restful. It's so restful, in fact, that a lot of people find that, yeah, they just sort of slump over. Not enough energy there to sit up and you don't care. You know, just <laughs> let go into the floor. Right? If that's the case, it's not a problem. 
Now, if you're peeking and you see somebody slumped <laughs> over, you should not think, oh, they've fallen asleep. You should think, oh, how nice, they're in the fourth <laughs> Unless, of course, they snore and give it away. Okay? But if you're in the fourth jhana and you want to move on to the fifth, it's going to be necessary to get your energy up a bit, you know, pull yourself upright. Then, here, by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is infinite, one reaches and remains in the realm of infinite space. Okay, so by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations. Remember in the first four, you're aware of your body because you can drench deep, saturate, and suffuse it. Now you need to be concentrated enough that you can completely ignore all bodily sensations. You just pass beyond them. You're not picking up those signals consciously. And then by the disappearance of all sense of resistance and non-attraction to the perception of diversity. I guess the best way to explain that would be to say, uh, give you the instructions. All right, so you get yourself up and then you need to find something you can expand without limit. What Ayakema told me was get in touch with the boundaries of my being and expand them to fill the room. Once I got that stabilized, expand them to fill the building. Once I got that done, expand them to fill the retreat center. Once I had that, just keep expanding further and further. And when I hit the horizon, just keep going. If you can find something to expand and just keep focused on the outer edges of the expansion, just go to the horizon and beyond. At first there's diversity, right? The room, the building, the retreat center, the horizon. But when you hit the horizon, it's just expand. There's no moon, Mars, Jupiter, Galaxies, nothing. It's just expand. Bigger, bigger, bigger. And the expansion needs to go without any system of resistance. Sometimes when you're expanding, you run into what feels like a wall. You either have to break through it or maybe change your direction and go in a different direction. And just keep expanding further, further. It doesn't matter what you expand. The boundaries of your being, as Ayakima told me. I had one student who was very imaginative. She took an imaginary balloon and just blew it up bigger, 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 bigger. She was also the one who followed a flashlight beam way, 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 way off into the distance. Uh, people talk about riding a rocket ship or riding an elevator. Whatever you can do to get this expansion going. 
if you can stay focused on the outer edges of the expansion, eventually a vast empty space appears before you. Put your attention on the spaciousness. And that's the fifth jhana. The realm of infinite space. Though the time of the Buddha, they didn't actually have the idea of infinity. They didn't have the idea of zero. So maybe the realm of a limitless space or the realm of boundless space. The word that's translated as realm is ayatana, which also refers to the senses. You might have heard of the six ayatanas, the six senses. Right, so it's the sense of infinite space, or perhaps not quite as literally, you're after the experience of limitless space. <clears throat> so you do the expansion and the space appears. However, while you're doing the expansion, if you look for the space, it's not going to appear. Because you're no longer focused on the outer edges of the expansion. Like you're there yet? Are we there yet? You know how. Are we there yet? Get you there so much faster. <laughs> you just do the expansion. Then the space appears. When it appears, most people describe it as off-white or light gray. It may or may not have a horizon line. That doesn't matter or they experience it as blackness, big, empty blackness. There's no stars, no galaxies, nothing. Just huge, black, empty space. Limitless, no boundaries. Your attention is on how big the space is. If you're a visual person, you will see the space. If you're not visual, you'll somehow sense that it's there. I can't really tell you what it's like to sense it if you're not a visual person because I'm a visual person and I always see it. Right? But the people I talk to who are not visual, so yeah, they did the expansion and suddenly there was a big space. And I asked him, how did they know there was a big space? And he was like, well, you can just tell. <laughs> you can just tell. All right. Uh, there is a tiny sense of an observer. You probably won't even notice it the first few times you get to the fifth job. The space has appeared before the observer. If it's really strong, fifth jhana. There's limitless space before you and below you and behind you and above you. Most of the time what you get is limitless space before you. It's sort of like you're in Arizona and you're walking across the desert in the sand and there's cactus and suddenly you come to the Grand Canyon. It's a big space and there's no bottom and there's no far side. It's that big pretty dramatic when it arises. And you just put your attention on the spaciousness. As with jhanas 2, 3, 4, it'd be good to be able to hang out there for 5, 10, 15 minutes. 
if good at it, you want to be able to repeat it multiple times. But once you've got skill at it, then you can try for jhana number six. And by passing entirely beyond the realm of limitless space, seeing that consciousness is limitless, one reaches and remains in the realm of limitless consciousness. The instructions are getting a bit sparse. Okay. So there's this huge space. You can't be aware of a limitless space with a limit, limited consciousness. Your consciousness has to be as big as whatever it's conscious of. To move to the sixth jhana, shift your attention from the space to your consciousness of the space. Become aware of your awareness of the space. It's sort of like a turning back when you do, it feels like you become absorbed into the space and then you become a limitless consciousness. Whereas before, the space was before you, now your mind is limitless and it's as big as the space was. And there's no more separation from observe, observer <laughs> and observe. There's just, you are conscious of how big your consciousness is. Most people who are visual describe it as dark. That's it. You know, it doesn't really have a visual component. Uh, it's just a sense of my mind is huge. It's as big as that space was. If you come from a spiritual tradition where the culmination of the spiritual path is union with some over consciousness, some all-embracing consciousness, some super Atman or whatever, and you hit the sixth jhana, you figure you did it, right? Because now your consciousness is as big as the entire universe, bigger. And, well, no. First place, Buddha, the Buddha said, no, nothing out there like that. The second place, None of these higher jhanas are actually tapping into an ontologically existent something out there. There might be infinite space, but in the fifth jhana you're having an experience which you interpret as, I'm experiencing limitless space. In the sixth jhana you're having an experience which you interpret it as, my mind is limitless. It doesn't mean you tap into a limitless consciousness out there. However, the orthodox interpretation of the jhanas is, of course, you're tapping into one of the heavenly realms. Right? There's the heavenly realm of limitless space and the heavenly realm of limitless consciousness. And you just go visit that place when you go to the jhanas. They actually talk about the first four jhanas as visiting various heavens. Buddhist cosmology is quite complex. You've got uh, 31 realms of existence, and a bunch of them will correspond to the jhanas. And uh, yeah, when you get to a jhana, you've gone to a heaven, but you can't stay, you gotta come back. 
that's the orthodox view. I'm saying, no, you just have an experience and you're interpreting that, it that way. One other possible thing that can occur in the sixth jhana, the limitless consciousness, is that it may feel like there's some other little consciousness in, in there. Some little consciousness over here, more over there. It's not that you can read the minds of the other people in the room. It's just that it seems like there are other consciousnesses in your limitless consciousness. I've only had this happen maybe a half dozen times in all the times I've been to the sixth genre. You've got to get a really good one before you're going to get something like that. And when it shows up, it's kind of cool, but it's no big deal. As before, if you get to the experience of the limitless consciousness, you want to stay there 5, 10, 15 minutes. Go there repeatedly. Get good, good skilled at it. But then, <coughs> you can try for the seventh job. And by passing entirely beyond the realm of limitless consciousness, seeing that there is no thing, one reaches and remains in the realm of no-thingness. Uh, sometimes translated as nothingness, but the translator here put no-thingness, which actually is a better uh, translation of what's going on. If you're in six and you want to move to seven, the trick is to shift your attention from the limitless consciousness to the content of that consciousness. Well, it turns out the sense of space is long gone. There's not any content of that consciousness. It's conscious of nothing, no thing. Put your attention on the no thingness, the no thing. I know, this sounds really weird. <laughs> All right. Uh, what you've got to do is get a sense of nothing. Now, the nothing is, well, it's not the emptiness of the Mahayana tradition. That's something completely different. Okay. This is, it's like you get the cookie jar, you take the lid off, and there's nothing in there, <laughs> right? It's that kind of nothing. It's like, let's say tonight while you're asleep, somebody comes into this room and removes everything. All the cushions and chairs and the Buddha and the lamps. And you come back in the morning and you go, there's nothing here. It's that kind of nothing. No thing can be found. So. You make the shift to the sense of nothing as the content of the limitless consciousness. And when you do, hopefully you get a, well, a kind of small nothing. It's not going to be a big nothing right off. Basketball size nothing, ball size nothing. Right? You get that nice and stable, and then you look at the edge, and there's nothing there. And you look for the other edge, and there's nothing there. Cause doesn't have edges. Now you got a bigger nothing. And once you get that stable, you look for the edge again, and it's bigger. 
if you get it fairly big, it's not going to get infinite feeling like the previous two. But you get a nice big stable nothing. It's sort of like you go down into the basement and you hit the light switch and it doesn't work. And you're trying to see what's in the basement. And you can tell, well, there's nothing right here in front of me. As your eyes get a little more adjusted to the dark, well, there's nothing over here, and there's nothing over here, and there's nothing down here at all. That's more like the experience of the seventh genre than anything else I've been able to come up with. If you're visual, it shows up as dark, usually black, occasionally deep purple, dark blue, just a, a big space with nothing in it. Or possibly, it might show up as, remember the old TV when you turned it to where there wasn't a channel and there was black and white static? Yeah. So imagine black and black static. Right? There's just this sense of movement. There's no thing there, but there's this movement, right? The seventh jhana can show up as either the static or as empty nothing. Uh, generally, whichever way it shows up first for you is the way it's always going to show up. Either one of them is fine, because both of them are experiences where there's no thing. People sometimes stumble into the jhanas by accident, uh, even as high as the seventh jhana. <coughs> I know this because when I first started teaching, people would come to my retreats and they'd come in for their first interview and they say, can I tell you about something that happened to me? Yeah. And they'd tell me like they were on the three-month course at IMS and they were just sitting there doing their inside practice and they fell into the void. It was, it was terrifying. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get back. Well, it looked like you got back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I went running to the teacher and I told him I fell into the void. Yeah. And they, they said, don't meditate for a few days and go take a shower and get something to eat. I said, well, you know, it sounds to me like you fell into the seventh jhana. You want to ask him more about the void and it sounds like the seventh jhana. You say, yeah, well, it's the seventh jhana. It's, it's a well-known state. They're really scared. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Okay, so then they learn the first six jhanas. Maybe it takes a couple of retreats. Maybe they're good at it. They've been stumbling into some of these along the way. And so finally they get to six. They go, yeah, you got six now. All right, here are the instructions for seven. I don't know if I want to go back. <laughs> no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So I give them the instructions, they're a little doubtful. They go away, three days later they come back for the next interview. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where I went before, only this time it wasn't scary. <laughs> the only reason it was frightening the first time was because I didn't know what it was. It was fear of the unknown. Once you understand what it is, it's great. There's nothing there to bother you. It's my favorite jhana. It's a great place to hang out. Right? So, you got to get good at nothing before you can get to eight. You really need not just a good seven, but 
yeah, a good seven and be able to stabilize it for an extended period of time. Because getting to eight, well, it's difficult. And by passing entirely beyond the realm of no-thingness, one reaches and remains in the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. Perception is the translation of the Pali word sanya. Sanya is our ability to name things, to say what they are. So you look up here and you see a lamp, you see the Buddha, you see a person, you see a water bottle, you see another lamp, you see a window. All right. When you're giving these names out, that's Sanya. It's usually translated as perception, although it's better translated as conceptualization. Your eye only sees colored shapes. Right? And your ear only hears sounds. And when you see a colored shape, you then conceptualize what you're seeing. When people see the boy sitting under the tree reading, can everybody see this? See the boy sitting under the tree reading? There's no boy sitting under the tree reading. Just black and white shapes, right? The boy <laughs> sitting under the tree reading is what your mind makes of those shapes. What is it now? Well, you turn it over in your mind and you can still see the boy upside down. But uh, if I hold it up again and you just look at the colored shapes, you could maybe not see the boy reading and just see the colored shapes. So the Sanya conceptualizes the shapes. So although Sanya is usually translated as perception, I must prefer to translate it as conceptualization. Right? It's the naming quality. You get a sensory input and you identify what it is. You look it up in your database of potential objects, find it and give it a name. Boy reading under a tree. Right? And so this eighth jhana is neither conceptualizing nor not conceptualizing. Neither perceiving or not perceiving. Neither naming or not making, neither identifying nor not identifying. I don't think that helps. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard to describe because, you see, it's a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it, and yet you can recognize that you're in a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. That's why it's called neither perception or non-perception. So neither perception, neither characteristics to describe it, but not non-perception. You can describe that you were in a state that had no characteristics by which you can describe it. That probably didn't help a lot either. But that's about the best I can do because, well, it has no characteristics by which I can describe it. <laughs> The good news is, if you get good at seven, you'll get a big seven, a big nothing, right? Let the nothing collapse and come to rest in front of your face and see if your mind goes into a state 
that doesn't have any characteristics by which you can describe it, but you can stay there. If so, you've probably found the eighth jhana. It's a much more fragile state than the previous jhanas. In, say, the third jhana, you've got contentment and you have your one-pointed focus on the contentment. To make the jhana strong, you don't want to make the contentment strong, you want to make the focus strong. Right? But you're sitting there and you might drift off a little bit. If you're not going too long, you can get back. I mean, you're there, you start to drift off, you begin to lose it, oh, you get back to it. You can even do that in seven. You got nothing, start drifting off, don't be gone long, right? get back there. You wobble a little bit. The eighth jhana, much more fragile. You might have time for one simple sentence that doesn't contain the words I, me, or mine. But if it does, you know, you just start wandering off. No, nothing left. It's gone. I couldn't tell you the number of times I've gotten into the eighth jhana, felt that it was pretty good, hanging out there, and then I find myself in the middle of some paragraph of distraction and there is not a trace of the eighth jhana left. They don't know how I got there. So I gotta either go back to seven or five and work my way back up, come back into eight. So sometimes what I do, I get to eight, I hang out for a little while, and then I go back to seven. Because I was in eight, it was deeper concentration, which gives me a deeper seven. Get that deeper seven going really good. Now I've got more concentration coming out of seven the second time and go back to eight. And now I've got a more stable eight. Right? So these are the higher jhanas. The purpose of the higher jhanas is they give you a mind that's even more concentrated, clearer, sharper, brighter, more malleable, more wieldy, more given to imperturbability. In other words, they'll enhance your concentration even more. I notice there's a, a very noticeable difference coming out of jhana number four versus coming out of jhana number eight. The concentration level has been noticeably stepped up if I've gotten to eight, even if eight wasn't particularly stable, just the journey to get that deep uh, enhanced my concentration and the non-functioning of the ego and the imperturbability and the indistractability stick around longer if I come out of eight than if I come out of four. But from reading the suttas, it, appear, it appears that four is sufficient. There are quite a number of suttas where just four jhanas are given and then you start your inside practice. So it does appear that the higher ones are optional, which is a good thing. The transition from four to five is the most difficult transition of all, harder than going from zero to one. Five to six is pretty easy. Once you've got a staple five, six to seven, that's pretty easy as well. Even seven to eight is easier than three to four. You just got to get a good one before you go to the next one. And then the transition is a good one. So that's the immaterial states, the so-called higher jhanas. 
However, there is a state that's sometimes referred to as the ninth jhana. It's never called that in the suttas. That's a much later designation. It's mentioned in the suttas. It goes by the name of the cessation of feeling and perception. The word cessation is naroda, feeling is vedana, perception is sanya. So naroda, vedana, sanya, the cessation of feeling and perception. And it's a state of suspended animation. You might have heard about somebody in India, they put him in a box, put the box in the ground, they cover it up. He's there for three days a week. They uncover it, open it up, he's all fine and happy. Right? He put himself into a state of suspended animation. That's what this state of Naroda is all about. It says in the suttas that one who is at the fourth level of awakening, full awakening, arhatship, or the third level, the status of a non-returner, can stay in this suspended animation, neurota state, for up to a week. This has been misunderstood that only arhats and people at the third level can enter this state. But no, it says only people at that level can stay for a week. People at lesser levels, even prior to stream entry, can enter the state of Nirvana, they just won't be able to stay for as long. There's a movie called uh, Shortcut to Nirvana, which is about, it's a documentary of the Kumbha Maya Festival that took place in India in 2001. It's a great movie, definitely worth seeing. And it's got the Dalai Lama, it's got all these sadhus, it's got some really interesting characters in there. And then there's a scene where they've dug a pit, and they put a ladder down into the pit, and this Japanese woman climbs down the ladder, they pull the ladder out, and then they put roofing tin over the pit, and then they cover it with dirt. In the scene. It's a more sadhus, and we see the Dalai Lama again, and there's some weird sadhus for sure. But three days later, they come back and they're sweeping away the dirt. And they pull up the roofing tin, and they put the ladder down, and the Japanese woman climbs out, and she's all happy. She had to be in the state of Nirvana. When they were testing the astronauts to see how long they could stay in a sensory deprivation, Okay. After about eight hours, every single one of them was beginning to freak out. For three days, yeah, I think it requires more than, more than an astronaut in turn. And so you just put yourself in suspended animation, and yeah, there's no passage of time, really. And then you're fine. I was in Thailand once for Thai New Year's. It's quite, quite a festival. It's at the end of the hot season and the beginning of the rainy season. And 
at that time, the Thais do their spring cleaning. And one of the things they would do would be to wash the Buddha statue. Uh, Buddhist high uh, Buddhist households would have a shrine with a Buddha statue, so you wash the shrine. And then the uh, routine developed that after you'd wash the Buddha, you would take some of the water and you would sprinkle it on the hands of your elders to salute their Buddha nature. Well, the sprinkling has gotten a bit out of hand in modern times, and everybody in the country is throwing buckets of water on everybody else in the country. It's 100 degrees, you know, and you step out of the door of your guest house and you're greeted with a bucket of water. You better have prepared yourself and have your own bucket. So I was in Chiang Mai for the festival one year and made my way down to the main square. And so the street runs along there and the Thais had set up these little machines that if you put in a one-bot coin, out would come some water. And they put big barrels under the spigots. And they see me coming and they go, one bot, one bot. Because I have to put in the one bot coin to refill my bucket, which got emptied on the way down to the main square. So, right, and so I'm there. And of course, people are throwing buckets of water in the windows of the buses or any car that comes by with its windows down. And if you're on a motorcycle, uh, yeah, it's, it's a highly participatory festival. <laughs> In the main square, though, off to one side, not in the middle of all the chaos and confusion, they'd set up a little pavilion. And in the pavilion was a monk. And he was seated in full lotus. His eyes were open and downcast. He had the most serene look on his face I have ever seen. It was actually quite inspiring. I mean, there's all this chaos going on around this guy. and. He's not moving. He's there all morning. He's there all afternoon when the big parade comes by. He's there that night when they have the first round of the beauty pageant, 50 yards away, 40 yards away. Close enough that, yeah, he's, he's unmoved, still looking serene. He's there the next morning, the next afternoon. He's there the next night when they have the second round of the beauty pageant. He's there the third morning. He looks a little tired, serenely tired. He's there that afternoon when the biggest parade of all comes through. He's there that night when they have the final crew beauty pageant. He's gone the next day. He had to be in the state of Naroda to sit there for three days without moving, without being disturbed, with literally bands going by <laughs> 10 yards away. And all this chaos and everything, and yeah, just sitting there meditating. The only other thing I can tell you about the state of Naroda. So I mentioned I sat with Pawok for a month and got the fourth jhana with a bright white, like the simile with the guy with the sheet over his head. Well, five years after that, I sat with Pawok for four months. I was at the forest refuge. I was there for two and a half months before he showed up, working on my concentration. And then he shows up, and he's teaching basically what he taught before, but now I've got more momentum and more time. And eventually I did begin to get 
the new circle the white bright circle of light and then one afternoon I come back from my walk and I'm meditating away and the nimitta appears and it's more vivid than I've ever heard in my life now Powell said you're not supposed to do anything with it until it becomes the same as your breath but no I put my attention on it and then it was 45 minutes later I'm guessing 45 minutes. As soon as I put my attention on it, I was gone. There were no body sensations, there were no sounds, and there was no passage of time. Just gone. And then I come back out of it, and it's like, oh, that was cool. And I look at my clock, and I knew how long I'd been there, more or less, before. I put my attention on the Nimitta. Now, to know where you went when that happened, you're supposed to look at your heart center. With how I gave you that instruction, I'm adhering. So, look down into your left with your eyes closed, and supposedly you see the reflection of the Nimitta. And then you'll find the factors of wherever you went. And so if it's the first jhana, you should see five factors. Initial and sustained attention, because they've missed the blind Vitaka PT and Sukha, and one-pointedness. So I look down, and this very sweet wave of PT and Sukha comes over me. Okay, PT and Sukha, that was there for sure. I look straight ahead, I look again, could I see initial Attention. Well, yeah, I saw me put my attention on the Nimitta, so that was there. Sustained attention. The whole time I was gone, my attention was on the Nimitta. The Nimitta never went away. It's just there was no passage of time while I was focused on it. So sustained attention, yeah, that was definitely there. And one point in this, well, for sure, because there was just the Nimitta. That was the one thing that was there. So I go to my next interview with Powell and I describe what's happening, and he says, good. Do for one hour, two hours, three hours. Okay. So he had a French-Canadian month there, and I had an interview with him the next morning, and he said, yeah, that's the first job. But it was a state of no Vedna and no Sanya. There was no concept. There was the light, but I wasn't judging it as anything, I wasn't naming it, I was just gone. And uh, it would appear that the first jhana in the Vasudhimaga tradition is the same as the so-called ninth jhana, the cessation of feeling and perception in the sutta tradition. Now, I had read an article by Rod Bucknell with exactly that thesis, that there are the eight jhanas of the suttas, and when you get to Naroda, you start with the first jhana of the Visuddhimagga and work your way on through deeper states of Naroda, I suppose, and you can get to the other state. In fact, I never got back to the first jhana again. The next day, I had done my recapitulation, so I knew exactly what to do, and I was going to watch what happened. 
took me about three days to figure out if you watch what happens, nothing happens. So don't watch what happens. Yeah, like don't think of a pink elephant. Right? Every one of you thought of a pink elephant. Never got back there. It, it was still very valuable because I'd get the nematode nice and strong and hang out with it. And then at some point I would fall off into one of the jhanas that I did, either second jhana, third jhana, or fourth jhana. Really strong, like I was getting before this power five years earlier. And so if it was second jhana, I'd go three, four. If it was third, I'd go three, four. I'd go to the fourth. If it was four, I'd stay there. And then I would come out and do inside. Just stay there and go. You know, kind of get up, move around. So it was valuable in the sense that I learned what Powell's first genre was like. It was valuable in having the experience of Naroda. It was valuable because it should put me in some very nice sutta jhanas. They were a nice warm-up for the inside practice. So that's the higher jhanas and the state of Naroda. Any questions? So in the five, six, seven, and eight, you do the same thing. Uh, you stay in it for a while and then begin to do insight work? Yeah. If you're going to do insight work, you want to go to the highest number you know and then step out and start doing your insight work. So, generally speaking, in your experience, does the quality of insight uh, correspond to whatever Johnny you start with? Yeah. It's more like that. Your insight practice will be more effective. It's not necessarily that you're going to, I mean, they say insights happen by accident. Insight practice makes you accident prone. Concentrated insight practice makes you even more accident prone, then maybe you'll get an insight. But I found that, yeah, coming out of the higher jhanas, I was more likely to get a nice deep insight. Then, if I just sat down and did it, right? But because I had the skill to get in five, six, seven, eight, it was easy to get there. If someone doesn't have that skill, it seems like if you get to four, it's going to make a real difference in your insight practice. So, no jhanas, you're down here. You get the first four, you're here. Five, six, seven, and eight take you a little bit further. And the quality, or the quality of your insight practice will be enhanced. In other words, you'll be able to do it longer before you feel like uh, your ego has intruded, or you're distracted, or you're getting tired of it, or whatever. But whether you get better insights or not, because insights come so irregularly, it's kind of hard to say. I wonder if uh, Jesus Christ's resurrection story might be based on somebody spending time on night John and then coming out. And I don't offend anybody here. Sure. Yeah. You are not the first person to exactly speculate that. Was Jesus's three days when he was dead, was he actually in the state of Naroda? And then he came out of it. Uh, I've read all sorts of speculations about what was going on, and that's one of them, and I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I do know that from the 
the archaeological standpoint of the Gospels, right? not the archaeology of digging up Israel, but the archaeology of looking at the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark appears to be the earliest, and the resurrection appears to be a later addition. Okay, so I'll just throw that out there and say, maybe we solve the whole thing by saying, well, yeah, they threw the resurrection in later. But I don't know. I have no idea. But it's certainly a plausible idea of what happened. And uh, you're not the first to, to bring up that idea. But, yeah, I don't know. Is there any auditory experience, maybe not? Like in your mind, like a boring sound, or it's kind of all encompassing. Yeah, most people find that the nada sound. Okay, so the nada sound, nada in Spanish means nothing sound. So the sound of nothing. When you don't have the fan on and it's really quiet, you can hear sort of a sound in your ears. It might be a hiss or high pitch something. Right? As you get more concentrated, that gets louder. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho teaches using it as the object of meditation. In other words, instead of paying attention to the breathing, you listen to the sound. And as you get more concentrated, it gets louder. Whether you are intending to listen to that sound or not, most people who hear it uh, say that as they get concentrated, it gets louder. And so you may experience that as you get into the deeper and deeper states, that there's this sound in the background. It, yeah, some people say it's high pitch, some say it's a hiss. It varies from person to person. Excuse me. But it does seem to get louder with concentration. That's really about all that I've ever heard anybody talk about. I have tinnitus, I can use it as a, as a meditation, but I'm talking something completely different, like a train. But then maybe it sounds like a train. Yeah, I think tinnitus is the not a sound that you don't like. <laughs> In other words, it gets loud enough that it's starting to bother you, and now it's called tinnitus. Uh, but, yeah, and whether that converts itself into something like a train or not, I don't know. Uh, mostly people talk about the not a sound of getting loud. That's about all I know. Um, followers of Paramahansa Yogananda have this contraption that they set up so that, so that they can do a mudra that closes up the hearing. Right. To hear that sound. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. I can hear it pretty much all the time. I can't hear it now because of the fan. But if the fan were off, I would be able to hear it. But then I listened to too much loud rock and roll and worked in noisy computer centers. So it's just the noise in the machinery. But yeah, if you put your fingers in your ears, yeah, I can hear it now easily. Seeing, even if you're not interested in the word. So, when you had that first John experience, was it that you didn't know you were in it until you were out of it? Right. It was like 
put my attention on the limiter and I didn't know anything for the next 45 minutes until I came out of it. And there was just the limiter and there was no processing of the experience, there was no passage of time. Uh, but the limiter was always there and when I came out it was very much like, oh cool, wonder how long that was. So I had a sense that something out of the ordinary had happened. It wasn't like I put my attention on the limiter and then it was over. Except that I put my attention on the limiter and it was over, but I knew some time had passed. How would you know, how would you know when to come out? There's no perception. Right. So the instructions for going into the state of Naroda make a big deal about setting a time to leave it. So you intend to go in and stay for three hours, or in the case of that monk and the Japanese woman, three days. And you make that very clear when you go in. And then you just come out automatically at that time. So I heard. I didn't set an intention or anything. And it wasn't in deep enough that there was anything to worry about. And besides, somebody would have come and checked on me when I didn't show up for my job the next morning. So uh, it wouldn't have been a problem. Uh, yeah, but you, you're supposed to set an intention. And there, there are stories of finding a monk in a cave who's sitting in full lotus and he's completely decayed. His skeleton is still sitting in full lotus. Presumably, he put himself into the rota and forgot to come out. <laughs> now, it may be only a story. I don't know if it ever actually happened, but the stories like that do float around. In Thailand, they say um, for an arahant, your body doesn't decay after you die. Have you heard that? Right. So in Thailand, they say your body doesn't decay after you die. They say if you're really well accomplished in Tibet, your body doesn't decay. That it will remain you know, just there. Uh, I've heard all sorts of speculations about why this is so. I have no idea. But I've heard it sit. And I have <laughs> no experience of that at all. So with the other jhanas, like one through four, um, how, how do you decide to stop the jhana practice and do insight? Do you wait until the jhana just kind of stops on its own? Or, because it's not, you know, some yeah. of them sound so pleasant, it's just like, yeah, why? <laughs> so when I, so how do you know when to stop the, uh, the jhanas and start doing insight? Yeah, when I first started playing with them, yeah, I was addicted. Uh, I, I'd play with them until the bell rang. And, you know. and then I go into an interview with Ayakema, and she says, okay, this is good. Now you need to do insight practice in the same sitting as the jhana. And I said, but it takes me so long to go all the way up to eight and back down. And she said, do them faster. And I said, yes, ma'am. Because Ayakema was not somebody you wanted to argue with. 
She was your favorite Jewish grandmother, but she was also extremely German. Right? And so when she told you to do something, you just knew the best response was, yes, ma'am, I will do that right away and let you know how it turned out. So she also said, you don't need to come back down. Just go up to the highest number and then just step out and start doing your insight practice. So one to eight, and I got there. Now, let's stay a long time in eight, so I'll get to eight. And I'm there for three or four minutes, you know, it's like, okay, maybe I better start my inside practice before I lose it. So I started doing inside practice. Well, the insights were mind-blowing. I learned more in the remaining three weeks of that retreat than I had learned in the previous six years of practicing meditation. It was, it was such that my friends could tell I was different when I came back from that retreat. It was really quite astounding. Uh, the insights just kept flooding in. So basically it was like, okay, I had I could get through the eight jhanas in half hour, something like that, and then I had some time for insight practice. Fifteen minutes if it was a forty-five minutes in an hour. Sit, I had another half hour for insight. And so then you then I was no longer addicted to the jhanas, you know. It was like the, the insights were far more compelling than just hanging out in these states. I mean, we're Westerners. We have our famous short attention span, right? You get high, it's wonderful. You get high, it's wonderful. You get high, okay, been there, done that, what comes next? Well, what's next is insight. So I do have to pay attention to the students and see who's being a jhana junkie. And then, it's only eight. Step. <laughs> it's just one step. The step is do insight practice. And you start doing the insight practice, and it is so much more interesting getting the insights than being out in, in the States. But yeah, I've met people who didn't have any instruction, who have been just doing the jhanas. And I remember this one guy, 14 years of doing the jhanas with no instruction, and he was sick of them. And it was like, no, you've got to do insight practice. And he was very appreciative to know, okay, this is what I do next. I also was at the Forest Refuge. No, I was at PCBS teaching once, and I got a note from one of the yogis at the Forest Refuge, which is like we're a mile up the road. And it was a former student of mine, and the note said, can I have an interview with you? I'm at the Forest Refuge, and I'd like to talk with you. And so, uh, and it said, I'll come down and check this board, you know, such and such a date and time. So I wrote, sure, come down at such and such a time. The student comes down. This was back when I could get away with that. Anymore. Let me do that anymore. Uh, and uh, the student describes what's happening. And all they're doing is jhanas. They've been there for several months, and they're just doing jhana practice. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. It's very important that you balance your concentration and your insight practice. You've got to do some insight practice after the jhana. And they were like, well, maybe that's why I'm so spacey. You see, the staff is kind of worried about me because I'm having trouble doing my job. 
you know, job like sweep, <laughs> wash dishes. <laughs> the person had gotten so spaced out they couldn't even handle that. And now we've got to do inside practice. They went back up there. I saw them at the end of their uh, retreat, and they were there for like 10 or 11 months. And they were like, oh, yeah, that made such a difference. The staff stopped worrying about me. I didn't have any trouble with my job. And I got a lot of insights. So yeah, it's a one-step program. It's me telling you, you've got to do insights. I want to know about your insight practice when you come back to your next interview. And to come out of the jhana, it's that. Just start the insight just practice. Start. So you're in four, and you want to do the five daily recollections. You just say to yourself, I am of the nature to grow old. Not exempt from anything. If you want to do the body scan, you put your attention on the top of your head and start scanning. If you want to do four elements, just start looking at your body for a solid thing. You should have something in mind. It's useful when you sit down to decide, okay, when I come out of concentration, this is what I'm going to do for my insight practice. That's it's quite a good idea. So the first thing you do when you sit down is you figure out, all right, when I come out of the jhanas, I'm going to do the body scan, five data recollections, or whatever. Okay? And then you do your five things, and you get concentrated, and you do your jhanas, and then you come out, and you know exactly what to do. You don't have to think about it. Is there something that's more specific to you um, instead of the remembrances, like a version or something like that's more specific? showing up for you on this, would you reflect on that? Yeah, you can do any insight practice that you have some idea that it might be a useful insight practice. Uh, you don't have to do the ones that I've told you only. You can do others as well. But I did say do the five daily reflections daily, and the body scanning daily. But yeah, you can do all the rest of the sits, you can do other things. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What happens on um, this retreat when the bell rings and you're in? If one is in, I don't know how to phrase that right. So if, if you're in a jhana, yeah. you need to decide whether you're going to stay another 30 minutes or not. Right? Okay. Whatever state you're in, if you're in access, you need to decide. Am I going to get leave or not? And if you're going to leave, you sort of just got to get yourself <coughs> up and leave. Which, yeah, it's not ideal. It's much better when the bell rings. You've got time to do your five things at the end, and then you usually get up and go. But it may be that, yeah, you sort of got to get up and get your shoes on and step outside. And maybe you just stand there for a bit and reflect, you know, review what you did and so forth before you start doing your walking meditation or whatever. Yeah, there's no need to rush to jhana form, okay? Uh, what you want to do is move through the four jhanas in a way that builds the concentration that that jhana will give you. So if you do a light jhana one, a light jhana two, a light jhana three, 
we have life down at four. So getting there quickly, eh, not so good. Let each of the jhanas, you know, work bill for a while. I would say, you know, five to fifteen minutes in a jhana. Now, there's four jhanas, you spend fifteen minutes in each one. That's an hour plus you needed time to get there, so you got an hour and a half. Probably you're not going to spend 15 minutes in each one every time. So maybe the first time you get the first jhana and it's intense, so it's only a minute. Right? And then the second one you stay for quite a while. And the third one, uh, not so long. The fourth one, medium, and you start doing inside practice. The next time, again, short one because you got it intense. Two, not so long. Three, kind of medium. Four, you stay for a long time. So you're, you're varying how long you stay in them given the length of the sitting. But you don't want to rush to get the four. You want to let each of them have a minimum probably of three or four minutes once you've gotten steady in it before you move on. And one of those before you get to four, you want it more like eight or ten minutes. And then when you get to four, you might stay there for a period before you try to work. So whenever you start to meditate, you just take and then move it quickly. Do I always run up to eight? <laughs> well, it depends on what's going on, you know? After a day of interviews, I'm kind of tired. It's a little hard to sit down and just crank out the jhanas. So sometimes, yeah, that's not what's happening. Other times, yeah, okay, it's happening really well. A lot of times I'll just go to four. You know, it's like four seems to be sufficient. I'm much more interested in the insight practice. So I got to four, all right, I'm just going to start my insight practice. When I'm on retreat, I'm more likely to run up to eight and start my next time. When I'm not, and I'm not on retreat by the time, I'm kind of talking to people, not quite retreat space. So, yeah, it's harder to get in. So, I haven't been past four on this retreat yet. I am of the nature to grow old, sick, and die. I'm not exempt from old age, illness, and death. All that is mine during the lifeful will change and vanish. And I am the owner of my karma. I am bored of my karma, but supported by my karma, and related to my karma. Whatever I do, whether good or evil, that I will inherit. And it's printed out on the counter of the kitchen floor. And it's on the coffee pot. And it's on the coffee pot. Coffee pot is on the table. Okay. This morning. Ready? That'll wake you up. <laughs> Alright, I think it must be time for a very short break. This is just a stretch break. <coughs>
is read the Buddha's words on loving kindness. So as I'm reading them, just let the words soak into you and do whatever they do as you hear them. In order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who seeks the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. 